This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. This podcast brought to you by My Patriot Supply. Did you miss the chance to get a 72-hour emergency food supply with free shipping for just 10 bucks? What's wrong with you? Don't worry. Call 888-411-7440 right now. They have a few left, and they're selling out fast. 888-411-7440. What are you waiting for? A disaster? Do it right now. 888-411-7440. And go for Mike Slater in 3, 2, 1. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, America is the greatest country in the world. Thank you for being here. Uh, it's been uh, quite a week. Um, but we got a lot of good stories to share today. Uh, and I want to talk a lot about the Syrian refugees. In a minute here, I want to talk about how we got here, um, all the things that have happened. Uh, we're going to go back a couple hundred years, and we're going to do just a quick overview, just so you know who the players are, right? When you hear things like the rebels or, uh, you know, well, Russia, who's Russia backing Assad, like all these things. And I know you're, you're smarter than the average bear, but I think it's good just to get a, a good overview of the players involved before we move forward. And then the next segment I want to talk about, um, I don't want to give it away, but a man whose legacy transcends cultures and time and um, every other barrier that you can think of. Um, and I think we can learn a lot from him in this time. And then obviously some, uh, I want to ask about the Christian approach. What's the Christian approach to the Syrian refugees? So that's all the stuff we got coming up today, but I, I got to start here just because I think I, I can try to pretend and, and think about how I would react if I was a part of this attack, meaning a, a family member died, my wife was killed in the attack. I can think I would rea- react a certain way, but I have no idea. But I hope, I hope I would react this way because I feel like this is the right way. That's all I can say. Um, this is Antoine. He wrote a message to ISIS. He said, Friday night, you took an exceptional life. The love of my life. The mother of my son. But you will not have my hatred. I don't know who you are and I don't want to know. You are dead souls. If this God for whom you kill blindly made us in his image, every bullet in the body of my wife would have been one more wound in his heart. So no. I will not grant you the gift of my hatred. You're asking for it, but, res- but responding to hatred with anger is, is falling victim to the same ignorance that has made you what you are. You want me to be scared. You want me to view my countrymen with mistrust and to sacrifice my liberty for my security. You lost. You know, I saw her this morning. Finally, after uh, nights and days of waiting, she was just as beautiful as when she left on Friday night, just as beautiful as when I fell hopelessly in love with her 12 years ago. And of course, I'm devastated by this pain. I'll I'll give you that little victory, but the pain will be short-lived. I know that she will be with us every day and that we will find ourselves again in this paradise of free love to which you have no access. We are just two, my son and me, but we are stronger than all the armies in the world. 
I, I don't have any more time to devote to you. I have to join my son. He's waking up from a nap. He's barely 17 months old, and he will eat his meals as usual. And then we are going to go play as usual. And for his whole life, this little boy will threaten you by being happy and free. Because no, you will not have his hatred either. Coming up a little later, I want to tell the story of, uh, of a woman, Isabel, who was in the, uh, the theater along with Antoine's wife. She survived, but she, she's telling the family members of the victims to, not, not to despair, obviously, but she tells them something that I think will um, lighten their hearts a little bit. And she talks about the, the last things she thought of as she was pretending to be dead for an hour lying in other people's blood. And she said, and I'll go into more detail a little later, but she talked about how she thought about all the people she loved. And she thought about all the wonderful memories with those people she loved. And she says, listen, I'm not, I don't know for sure. But if I were going to, if I were going to be killed at that, in the last second, the, my last thoughts were full of wonderful, wonderful things. So I, I can only assume that your loved one's final thoughts were only of wonderful, wonderful things as well even though these vultures, as she puts them, were circling over us. I want to share that story uh, coming up in a little bit. But first, how did we get here? Let's go into a geopolitical world right here. How did we get here? How did we get here? Let's clear all this up. So the Ottoman Empire, oh gosh, this is boring already. No, I promise it'll be interesting. Ottoman Empire, 1516 to 1918, long time in that neck of the woods. Right after World War I, 1918, France took over the area that we now call Syria. And France sort of controlled it for a long time. And by sort of, I mean they had Syrian prime ministers, but it was all under French military control. And it wasn't until France fell in World War II that Syria became an individual and separate state. But even then, the borders were drawn by people who had no idea what they were doing, right? Just like, ah, I don't know, Syria is like here. And they just drew Syria. And there's no, they didn't take into account different groups of people within the country or anything like that. They just, yeah, there's Syria. So all that gets really confusing about France's role. But just know that France played a major role in Syria in the first half of the last century. And people, I, I think it's important because people are wondering why France is being attacked. I mean, listen, these people don't forget. These, these ISIS cats, they're still upset about the Crusades. So, of course, they're going to be aware of French control of Syria in the first half of the last century. So that's why I believe they're attacking France over anyone else. But I digress. All right, we have three minutes on the clock. So we'll start March 2011. You remember this, the uh, Arab Spring, the Syrian uprising. A bunch of Syrian people in the streets, good people rising up and saying, President Assad, you are a bad guy. And we want to take you down. And Assad's force opened fire on the Syrian people, killed four of them. So a bunch of people formed the Free Syrian Army. We call these people the rebels. So when you hear the rebels, this is who we're talking about, the Free Syrian army. Now, a bunch of people in Assad's army defected to join the rebels. And on the way, they seized a bunch of uh, guns and all that stuff, and, and they took over some military bases. So that's why they're a somewhat legitimate fighting force. 
They have some military know-how. They have some uh, equipment and even some bases. So now we got a full-fledged civil war. We got Assad, the president of Syria, since, oh gosh, 2002 maybe. And um, the, the rebels, the free Syrian army. This is where it gets interesting. Russia has been backing Syria ever since the Cold War in the 60s. Just a couple of years ago, Russia sold a billion dollars in arms to Assad in one year. A billion dollars. The Soviets built the Syrian military in the 60s. Syria is the, was the Soviet Union's proxy in the Middle East. Russia still has a military base there in Syria today. It's a naval base on the Mediterranean, hugely important for Russia, which is why Russia supports Assad. Right? Eric Miles, stop me if anything gets confusing here. Stop me if anything starts, stops making offense. So Russia loves Assad because their allies and uh, Russia wants to keep their military base on the Mediterranean Sea. So now we got Russia and Assad on one side, rebels on the other. Now, this is a genius move here from Assad or whoever came up with it. The rebels in this light can be viewed as the righteous citizens fighting against the evil dictators of Assad and Putin. But what Assad did is he had all these Syrian prisoners uh, or Syrians in, in prison, um, all these Islamists, all these extremist Muslims in prison, bad, bad guys. And Assad released them, knowing that these bad guys would join the rebel cause against him. Why did he do that? Why would he release people from prison? Why would he release bad people from prison, knowing that they would then go join the rebel cause to fight him? Because he knew that if the rebels had all these evil Islamists in their ranks, no one else in the world would dare support them. And we don't. There's no Christian groups. Um, America doesn't want to support the rebels when the rebels are now made up of such bad people. Now they're made up of bad people. They may not have originally been made up of bad people, but now they, now they are. That is a genius move. Does that, does that make sense, gentlemen? Let me, try, let me try to simplify that. And just I'm making these numbers up just for example's sake. Uh, let's say the rebels were made up of 1,000 people. So you have a thousand good people fighting the oppressive dictator of Assad and Putin. Now we would come in and raise their ranks to a hundred thousand and they'd and support the rebels, take out their dictator and then give power back to the good people of the free Syrian army. But Assad released these prisoners, these extremists, these Islamists. Let's say there's 500 of them. Now there's 1,500 people fighting for the rebel cause. And we're thinking, well, gosh, we don't want to support them now. We don't want to support them against Assad because if they win, now we're just going to give power to these Islamists. And that's why everyone's pretty much sitting back and doing nothing when it comes to supporting them. Assad's move worked perfectly for him. So I'll skip ahead. Iran backs Assad. Now keep in mind this Iran deal is going to give Iran $150 million over a period of time. Um, and all that money is pretty much going to go to Assad and other terrorist groups. But Iran backs Assad. The Gulf states, so Saudi Arabia, they support the rebels. And the only reason they support the rebels is because they want to counter Iran's influence in Syria. Right? Then you throw in Hezbollah, 
which is another evil terrorist group. They're joining Assad. So then the Gulf states said, well, hold on. Now we're going to send a ton more money up to support the rebels. Because now we got Assad, we got Putin, we got Iran and Hezbollah. So we're going to come in and we're going to support the rebels against this oppressive force. Out of all of this chaos, ISIS separates themselves from the rebel group. And they take over parts of eastern Syria and Iraq. Now, you may remember a couple weeks ago it came out that we tried to help the rebels. We started a $500 million program to train moderate rebels to fight not Assad, but to fight ISIS. Um, We wanted to train 5,400 rebels to take on ISIS. And at the end of the program, do you guys remember the story? I think it was, I think we ended up training four people. I'm not kidding, four or six, something like that. We wanted 5,400. We trained a handful. That's how terrible that effort was. So here's where we are. We have the president of Syria, bad guy, backed by Iran and Russia, even worse guys. We have the rebels, perhaps originally a good group, now full of bad people, backed by Saudi Arabia, bad guys. Out of this chaos formed ISIS, bad people. And there you have the Syrian civil war. What do you do with that? I got some ideas, but we got to take a break here. I'll just let you sit on that brief history of how we got here and who the players are uh, are involved. Mike Slater Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. This podcast brought to you by My Patriot Supply. Did you miss the chance to get a 72-hour emergency food supply with free shipping for just 10 bucks? What's wrong with you? Don't worry. Call 888-411-7440 right now. They have a few left, and they're selling out fast. 888-411-7440. What are you waiting for? A disaster? Do it right now. 888-411-7440. Slater. Uh, I want to tell the story of a man right here. We've got a couple minutes to do this. Times like this, um, well, you know what? This ties in perfectly. Gosh, golly, look at that. Uh, times like this, we tend to look towards leaders. And naturally, the first leader we look towards is a president. Now, I don't think we should <laughs> necessarily. Or let me say, I don't think we should entirely. Yesterday, the entire show was about looking within and and how we can step up as leaders of our families, how we can change lives, how, you know, the line we use a lot is uh, we get so wrapped up in trying to change the world that we don't consider how we can change someone's world, right? So we talked about how in light of the attacks in Paris, how we can change our lives, how we can be better people, how we can be better moms and dads and husbands and wives. And where... Other people try to turn on darkness, which is impossible, really. You can't turn on the dark. It's our job to turn up the light. So that was what yesterday's show was was about. But that being said, we still, it's in our nature 
to turn to leaders. Doris Kearns Goodwin tells a story of Leo Tolsky, the Russian writer. And he did an interview in like 1900. And he was talking about a trip that he made to a very remote part of Russia. So this is uh, this remote area he was in. So a little geography, uh, Turkey and Iran meet. North of that is Armenia and Georgia and some other country, I forget. Just north of that is Russia. And in this area there, at least back then and probably on a wild barbarian, just like desolate, middle of nowhere, nomad-like situation, right? People who have never left that part of Russia their entire lives. So Tolsky went there to meet with them, and they asked him, knowing he was a great learned man, they asked him to tell stories of all the great men of history. So told stories like, all right, let's gather around. And he, and he told them stories of Napoleon and Alexander the Great, and Frederick the Great, and Julius Caesar, and all the rest. And people, the people loved it. They ate it up. But when he was done, someone stood up. One of the, one of the people there in Russia stood up and said, but hold on. You haven't told us about the greatest ruler of them all. We want to hear about the man who spoke with a voice of thunder. Who laughed like the sunrise. Who came from that place called America. Which is so far from here that if a young man should travel there, he would be an old man when he arrived. Tell us of that man. Tolstoy was stunned. He said, okay, (laughs) all right. And he sat back down and he proceeded to tell these men everything that he knew of Abraham Lincoln. So Tolstoy is um, telling this to the, the person interviewing him. And he said, what made Lincoln so great? He wasn't as great of a general as Napoleon or as great of a statesman as Frederick the Great. But his greatness consisted in the end. Does that make sense before I move on? But he's not, not, he wasn't the best general, wasn't the best, whatever. His greatness consisted in the integrity of his character and the moral fiber of his being. The integrity of his character and the moral fiber of his being. That's what made him great. I want to talk about, and that ties into Dan Wood there a moment ago, right? If I did not jump into the river and save this girl's life or try, then I would not be the man I am or the man I profess to be. Abraham Lincoln professed and dedicated his life to being great. And here's what I mean. I want to talk about ambition for a minute. Should I take a break here? Mm. Let me take a quick break. Uh, I want to come back and talk about ambition. And I want to tell a story of Abraham Lincoln um, in the midst of one of his depressions. Bouts of depression, I guess you call it. Um, And what it took for him to get out of it. And then what he said to a friend of his 
uh, one day in the White House, looking back on that day. And gosh, it ties in so perfectly with Dan when he says we are all capable of that type of greatness. We're all capable of it. All right, we'll do that coming up next. 1-800-760-KFMB. And I share all this again because, you know, we're, we look, it's in our nature, and that's okay, to look towards the president. Uh, gosh, you're going to be disappointed. one 800 Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On The Blaze Radio Network. Hey, Slater Crusaders, thank you for being here. one 888 and Slater Radio on Twitter. Um, in regards to the Syrian refugees, um, people, I've heard some people say, you know, we heartlessly did not let Jewish people into America before we entered World War II. And maybe, we may have to do it tomorrow. Maybe we could tell the story of the... Uh, the St. Louis. Have you ever had the story, the, the, the voyage of the St. Louis? It is, it will break your heart. It's unbelievable. Maybe we do that tomorrow, but I want to make a, a different World War II comparison. So Takeo Sato was the grandson of immigrants from Japan. And his mom was born in Sacramento. His dad was born in San Francisco. And they met and married in Los Angeles. Hosato was four when Pearl Harbor was bombed. Now, I would say understandably, and I think if you don't think understandably, I don't think you're really being honest, to be to be honest. Uh, but understandably, after Pearl Harbor, Americans were skeptical of people who looked Japanese, thought they could be Japanese spies. So Pearl Harbor was December 7th, February 1942, FDI ordered all Japanese Americans on the West Coast to be rounded up and put in camps in the middle of the country. They were put in Arkansas and Wyoming and Idaho and Utah and Colorado and a couple in, in uh, California. So I want to read from Hosato. So he was four years old when, when this happened. He said, on April 20th, I celebrated my fifth birthday. And just a few weeks after my birthday, my parents got my younger brother, my baby sister, and me up very early one morning, and they dressed us hurriedly. My brother and I were in the living room looking out the front window, and we saw two soldiers marching up our driveway. They carried bayonets on their rifles. They stomped up the front porch and banged on the door. My father answered, and the soldiers ordered us out of our home. My father gave me and my brother small luggages to carry. We walked out and stood on the driveway waiting for our mother to come out. And when my mother finally came out, she had our baby sister in one arm, a huge duffel bag in the other, and tears streaming down both her cheeks. I will never be able to forget that scene. It is burned in my memory. We were taken from our home, loaded on a train with other Japanese American families. There were guards stationed at both ends of each car as if we were criminals. We were taken two-thirds of the way across the country, rocking on that train for four days and three nights to the swamps of Arkansas. 
I still remember the barbed wire fence that confined me. I remember the tall sentry tower with the machine guns pointed at us. I remember the searchlight that followed me when I made the night runs from my barracks to the latrine. But to five-year-old me, I thought it was kind of nice that they'd lit the way for me to go to the bathroom. I was a child, too young to understand the circumstances of my being there. So we'll jump ahead. So brought him to Japanese camps. After the war, all the Japanese families were given, Japanese American families were given a one-way ticket to anywhere. So Hosato's family decided to go back to LA and they lived on Skid Row. They didn't have any money. Took all their money with them. House was gone, all the rest. They didn't have any money. So they're sitting on Skid Row. And he says, one night a drunk came stumbling down the sidewalk, threw up all over the family, or all, ne- all over next to the family, who was also sleeping on the sidewalk. And Osato's baby sister said, Mama, let's go home. And she was talking about the camp in Arkansas. She was talking about that piece of land surrounded by barbed wire. That was home to her. But Osato's parents were not going to live like this. They worked hard. They got back on their feet and they bought a three bedroom home in a nice neighborhood just a couple years later. So Osato grew up and he started to read in school about this thing called democracy. And he's having trouble making sense of this because he's remembering his time in these camps and how his family was round up by soldiers and pulled out of their home and sent to these camps in a train and all the right. And he's learning about democracy and he's saying, dad, this doesn't make any sense. Like what, what's going on here? And his dad said, son, democracy is a people's democracy. And it can be as great as the people can be. But it's also as fallible as people are. Quick time out. How about that sentence right there? Okay. How about that? You're a minority. The country decides to round you up throw you in an internment camp, basically, and your reflection on that is, yeah, you know, democracy, sometimes it'd be really great, sometimes it's not so great. <laughs> what? How, how, about that, how about that perspective? And I'm not going to go down this road, but just compare that with the kids at University of Missouri and Yale and all the rest who whine and complain about nothing while this man spent a certain number of years, what, four or five years, in an internment camp. And he's like, yeah, you know, democracy. People are fallible. Wow. So his dad and his, uh, Hosato and his dad had a conversation. They got in the car. They drove to a campaign headquarters downtown so that dad could teach his son how democracy works, how the process works. And on the way back home, dad told his son about the 442nd. And this is why I bring this whole story up. He told his son about the thousands of Japanese Americans who were in these camps who then decided to join the military. These Japanese Americans put on the same uniforms as the guards were wearing so that they could go off and fight for the country. Which is bonkers to me. Like, you know, we talk about like Tuskegee Airmen, stuff like that. Jesse Brown, we shared his story a couple weeks ago, first black fighter pilot in the Navy. And how, how black people could fight for America, for a country that treated them like they did. You couldn't get a bite to eat but at a, at a diner, but you're going off and fighting for this. And we've talked to a couple of these black soldiers from World War II and Korea, and they're like, yeah, well, we were fighting for an ideal. 
We're for we're fighting for what we knew America could be. Not what America is, but what America could be. Gosh, that's beautiful. Same thing with these Japanese Americans. They said, A, we're going to end this war so that our families can get out from behind these fences. But also we're fighting for the ideal of what America, America's potential is. How good is that? So dad tells his son about the Gothic line. I never, I never, I never learned about the Gothic line in school or college. Isn't that amazing? I, I learned about the Gothic line when I was in New Orleans and I went to the World War II Museum and I'm walking through and came across this. Um, but the real short of it is that the Germans embedded themselves in this mountain uh, hillside and they hid in the caves and they booby-trapped the whole thing. It was brutal. And the Americans could not get through it. They tried for six months to break through uh, and get across these mountains and they couldn't do it. So America called up the men of the 442nd. These are Japanese Americans whose families are in these internment camps or whatever you want to call them. So these Japanese Americans, they look at this and they say, okay, we got to try something different here. The backside of the mountain was a cliff. And the Germans didn't bother doing anything with that because no one's going to climb the cliff. I mean, it's impossible to climb this steep cliff. So they're like, okay, we're not going to worry about that and we're just going to focus on over here. So on a dark moonless night, these men began to climb this cliff in full combat gear. They climbed over a thousand feet and they climbed all night long in pitch blackness and here's the craziest part this is the part that haunts me some of these men lost their footing so they're a thousand feet up right so imagine you're 800 feet in the air 80 stories right some of these men lost their footing and they fell to their deaths. But as they were falling, they knew that they couldn't yell. Because if they yelled, they'd give away their position for everyone else. So if they lost their footing and they fell, they fell silently. And if you're the guy climbing the cliff and the guy next to you falls, he just you just hear the rocks, you know, like his footing fall off the rocks and then he just, silently he's gone. And I just imagine I'm sitting on this rock and the guy next to me falls off and he can't say anything. I'm just like, oh, how do you do that? They got up to the top of the mountain and as soon as the light broke, they attacked. A six-month stalemate at the Gothic line was broken in 32 minutes by the men of the 442nd. When they got back home, President Truman gave them the Medal of Honor and said, you fought not only the enemy, but prejudice, and you won. I share all this because... Um, of this one quote from Takeo Sato. And I should probably tell you now that this story is uh, Takeo Sato. We know him as George Takei, Star Trek. That's his story. He was the four-year-old who was sent to this camp. He says, they, meaning the men of the 442nd, they are my heroes. They clung to their beliefs in the shining ideals of this country. And they proved that being an American is not just for some people. That race is not how we define being an American. They expanded what it means to be an American. They were change agents. And they left for me a legacy. They are my heroes and my father is my hero who understood democracy and guided me through it. 
They gave me a legacy, and with that legacy comes a responsibility, and I am dedicated to making my country an even better America. There's a ton of lessons here. And you can share the story in a hundred different times, get a hundred different lessons. For me, in context of the Syrian refugees, and we've shared before, I have no problem taking in Syrian refugees. 10,000 is almost nothing. We need a hundred percent proper, absolutely complete background checks. I think every refugee needs a sponsor who will be held accountable for their time here in America, um, legally accountable for their time here in America. We got to go through all the checks and everything. For these Syrian refugees, there's no doubt about that. But in the end, 10,000, that's nothing. Then, for them and for every other Muslim and every other refugee in America who people may be skeptical of, I'd like to see some action from them. I don't want to see any more hashtags from Muslim people telling us uh, not not to look at them funny. Let's see some action. Because you know what? The Japanese experienced it far worse than you are. And here's the key. Look what they did to prove themselves. That's my point. They didn't just whine and complain that people were looking at them funny. They said, this isn't right. I'm going to prove myself. I'm going to join the American cause for freedom and liberty and the American ideal. I'm not going to change our country. I'm going to join these people in making America a better country. Not going to complain about the way I'm being treated. We're going to fight for our country so that people are no longer skeptical of me. To me, in a situation like this, that is the only proper way to respond. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. I was talking to a guy from France a couple months ago, and we were just talking about the state of France and all this stuff. This was after Charlie Hebdo, actually. And he talked about the soccer match. It was in 2008, France versus Tunisia. And it was in France, and the Tunisian national anthem played, and it played, and it was fine. And then the French national anthem played, and, well, you heard all the the whistles and and boos. Outrage across France. I never heard about this because who cares, right? But 2008 in, in France, this was a big deal. Sarkozy, the president at the time, said that if anyone boos the national anthem again, if any visiting team, then the match should be called off before it even starts. So there's outrage across the country for this. But here's the interesting part. It wasn't the fans who were visiting from Tunisia who were booing. It was the Tunisians who lived in France who were booing France. They were booing the countries they live in. How bizarre is that? And the excuse was that the Tunisians in France aren't treated well. <laughs> but is it better than you'd be treated in Tunisia? And if not, why are you in France? 
You may have heard the soccer game the other day. I forget even where it was, where more people were booing and all this stuff. I think it was in Turkey. It's crazy. So this has been going on for a long time. Again, that was in 2008. I just feel like if I lived in France, if I was a refugee, if I was a Muslim, I don't know, maybe it's not fair, but I'd feel like I'd be marching in the streets all week, every day, all this week, marching in the streets saying, this is not who I am. I love living in France. I love the French people. And I will join you in protecting France in any way possible from people who may want to hurt you. I mean, think again, the, the Japanese. World War II, we turned them. We rounded up all the Japanese Americans from the West Coast. We put them in camps. Took away everything they owned. And here's one of those, Amer- those Japanese Americans who joined the military, Susumu Sato. He said, my priority was to try and show the American people that we are just as loyal as anybody else. We need to prove our loyalty because the reason why we're in camps is because the American public says that we are enemy aliens and that perception has got to be changed. And they changed it. So all the Muslims who think it's unfair that people may look at them, uh, you know, second take and all this stuff, there's a precedent for you changing that perception. Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Let me finish tonight with two numbers that don't make sense, certainly not when you put them together. The first number is four. That's the number of Syrians we Americans have recruited and trained to fight ISIS. Hold on to that number four, because now comes the huge question mark that comes with the other number. That other number is four million. That's how many Syrian refugees there are, 4 million, including all those able-bodied men we've seen aboard those boats to Europe. So why the strange, unexplained difference in these numbers? 4 million people fleeing ISIS and Assad and just four trained to regain their country. Is there just one in a million Syrians willing to fight for Syria? Is that the deal? Is it? Would just one in a million Americans be willing to fight for our country if it were taken from us, if it came to that? There are dread implications to these numbers. They signal that ISIS is not only winning this war for Syria, they're taking the country from people who would rather leave for the West, either that or no one in the United States is out there doing something to alter their decision-making. We talk, don't you hear it, relentlessly about how ISIS recruits its members worldwide, how it uses social media. Why aren't the fleeing people of Syria doing that? Why isn't the United States and other countries trying to build a Syrian army of the millions of people who have a birthright to fight for that country. Some said here last night that we can't ask Syrians to fight for their country because they have families. Well, tell that to the American families, those we care most about, who have a member of their family on their fourth deployment right now. When we went in to liberate Paris, we had elements of the Free French Army fighting alongside us. Is it too much to ask that the Syrians lead the fight to retake Syria? It is their country, unless they're willing to abandon it. And what do we think of people who do that? And besides, even if we, the United States and other European armies, overthrew ISIS, we still have to turn Syria over to somebody. 
If we had Syrians playing their rightful part in the liberation of their country, they would be the ones taking it over. That was Chris Matthews the other day. I, um, I want to play real quick a phone call that I got the other day on my local show from uh, Bill. Hey, good morning, Mike. Love you, brother. Thank you, man. Hey, um, I just got one question here, Mike. Um, I'm coming from a background of spending 21 years in the Marine Corps. And um, my idea when I was in the Marine Corps was to help people and to to try to, to make their lives better. I didn't go anywhere to kill people. However, I'm looking at this whole situation, and uh, I'm a biblically-oriented person. I believe in James and what he says. That's one of my best passages on widows and orphans, mm-hmm. keeping yourself pure. However, my my feeling is I'm watching TV. I see all these refugees. I see one or two men, women with their children. I see a couple of kids. I see a couple of families. I see the majority of young guys uh, running around, fighting one another to get on a train, pushing women aside to, to save themselves. Um, I believe in accepting the women and children that are refugees into this country, the ones that are being oppressed. I don't believe in accepting young men of fighting age. Why should they come here and get all the goodies? And I have to send my son or grandson over to correct this situation. I just can't handle that. I, I, I'm just, uh, I'm appalled. Uh, again, I believe in accepting all of those that are in need, women and children, bring them here and take care of them, or give them safe refuge somewhere. But these young men of fighting age, turn them around, send them back, make them fight for their own country. What's going on here? That's crazy. Hmm. Uh, why, should, why should we send any more Americans to die for these people who don't even care to fight for their own country? That's my opinion, Mike. There you go. Bill, pleasure having you here, sir. Such a great phone call from Bill. I want to add a little more to that uh, a little bit later. But first, let, let, me get this, um, let me get this out here so you can uh, put this in your back pocket. When you're having a conversation with some friends and the conversation of securing the border comes up, I just want to make sure you add two things to that conversation. You don't have to go too in-depth, but just throw this in there and then, you know, so they can think about it. First, make sure that they say borders and not the border. We have two borders. And a couple terrorists we know that we've caught have come through the Canadian border, tried to come through the Canadian border. So borders. Second, please throw in there that, and I don't even know if there's a word for this. I don't know if we want to call it the third border or an invisible border. Let's call it the third border. How about that? We'll call it the third border. And that is the visa program we have in America. So from 1993 to 2001, there were 48 Al-Qaeda terrorists in America. 48 that we've captured or whatever. Or September 11th. Of the 48, 41 of them were issued visas. Of the 19 9-11 hijackers, we can only see 15 of their visa applications because the State Department destroyed the others, so we don't have access to them. But none of them should, be, should have been approved in the first place. Why, why were these people issued visas at all? There's no reason for them to be here. And the answer is very simple. We can go into a lot more detail, but the answer is very simple. The foreign visa application process is there to serve the foreigners, not the American people. It's no different than our immigration policy, really. Who's it there to serve? Us or them? 
Since 2001, the number of, of visas to Saudis has increased 500%. That's where all the 9-11 hijackers were from. And we've increased the visas to Saudi, from Saudi Arabia by 500%. There's 34,000 Saudi nationals in American universities. And there is no group of people on the planet that hates America more than Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is number one. Like the Iranian people, they like America. The Iranian people like America. The Afghan people couldn't care less about America. But the Saudi Arabian people hate us. They are raised to hate Americans and Jews with Wahhabism. And we don't have time to get into all that. But that's what ISIS is. It's a form of Wahhabism. So anyway, this is the main point I want to make. There are currently 1.1 million foreign students in America. 1.1 million foreign students in America. There are 28 ICE agents, Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, 28 ICE agents responsible for keeping track of 1.1 million foreign students. Our government has no interest in keeping track of foreigners on student visas. And all it takes is 19 to cause the biggest terrorist attack in American history. And when I first read this, that there's only 28 ICE agents in charge of 1.1 million uh, foreigners, First of all, we double check everything, but like, no way is that one true. Sure enough, I got a press release right here from ICE in 2014 bragging that they've doubled the number of field representatives in charge of international student visas. And they doubled it from 14 to 28. Now, nowhere in the press release did they mention that there's 1.1 million foreign students, which is about 40,000 students per ICE agent. So there's no way that they can keep track of foreign students properly. Now, I'm not saying we need to stop student visas. But I think it's pretty obvious that students coming from Saudi Arabia and Egypt and other countries like this need a higher level of scrutiny before they get their visa and then once they're here throughout the time they're here. And the number of people who outstay their visas, even from these countries, outrageous, outrageous that we allow it. There's a third border. We have Mexico, we have Canada, and I guess you could call our coasts as another one. But this third border are student and tourist visas. That system's got to get taken, uh, got to get uh, a better handle on. Paris has easy passage into it. And also easy places to hide within it. Let's make sure that America has neither of those things moving forward. That's the most important thing I think our government can do short term, like immediately, to uh, to keep us safe. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three on the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Part of the next generation of talk radio, this is Mike Slater. Um, I want to go inside the theater here for a couple minutes. A woman who was inside the theater says that uh, these terrorists told people to lie down on the floor 
And when they walked down the aisles, they would just shoot people lying on the ground. One of the terrorists went to the section of people with disabilities and and just started shooting people in wheelchairs. Someone released uh, a picture of the theater in the aftermath and there's just bodies piled across the floor. The floor is completely red. Nick was selling merchandise at the concert and he was shot and everyone fell to the ground, threw themselves to the ground. And so did the woman who was standing right next to Nick. She was shot in both legs, but rolled over to see what happened to the man next to her. And she tried to keep Nick talking. She did mouth to mouth, but he died in her arms right there. Nick's girlfriend is back in England. And she wrote this on Facebook. She says, three years ago on this day, I met you on the corner of East 15th and Irving, and I fell in love the moment I laid my eyes on you. This is the most loving, passionate, and eventful relationship I've ever experienced. You were my everything, my lover, my best friend, my soulmate. I'm completely crushed and heartbroken right now. I will miss you terribly. And on her Facebook page, she posted a picture of a note, a random note that that Nick left her one day. And at the top, it says, stop press. That's the British version of stop the presses. Stop press. I love you, Paulina. Nick. That's one of the, what do we got, 89, I think, people who were killed inside that theater. Nick Alexander. I want to share a story here of Isabel. She posted a a picture on Facebook of the t-shirt that she was wearing at the concert. A white tank top splattered in blood, and she's not sure if it's hers or not. I guess it doesn't matter at this point. If I can just read from her account, she says, You never think it will happen to you. It was just a Friday night at a rock show. The atmosphere was so happy, and everyone was dancing and smiling. And then when the men came through, she said men. These are not men. When these people came through the front end, they're not even people. uh, These terrorists came through the front entrance and began the shooting. We naively believed it was all part of the show. It was a massacre. Dozens of people were shot right in front of me. Pools of blood filled the floor. Cries of grown men who held their girlfriend's dead bodies pierced the small music venue. Shocked and alone, I pretended to be dead for over an hour. Lying among people who could see their loved ones motionless. Think about that. Think about lying on the ground. This ends on a positive-ish note. So, Think about lying on the ground, pretending to be dead amongst piles of people. You've been to a concert, right? Like a venue like this. Imagine if all those people just fell to the ground. And you had to pretend to be dead because if you moved or cried or breathed, they would kill you. She says, I was incredibly, and an hour, how long is an hour when you're in that situation? I'm incredibly lucky to survive, but many didn't. The people who had been there for the exact same reason as I was, to have fun a Friday night, they were innocent. 
the images of those those people, those terrorists, circle, circling us like vultures will haunt me for the rest of my life. The way they meticulously aimed and shot at people around the standing area without any consideration for human life. It didn't feel real. I expected any moment for someone to say it was just a nightmare. But being a survivor of this horror lets me be able to shed light on the heroes. To the man who reassured me and put his life on the line to try and cover my head while I whimpered. To the couple whose last words of love kept me believing the good in the world. To the police who succeeded in rescuing hundreds of people. To the complete strangers who picked me up from the road and consoled me during the 45 minutes, I truly believed that my husband was dead. To the injured man who I had mistaken for my husband and then on my recognition that it was not him, held me and told me everything was going to be okay despite being all alone and scared himself. To the woman who opened her doors to the survivors. I'm going to tell that story a little bit later. To the friend who offered me shelter and went out to buy new clothes so I wouldn't have to wear this blood-stained top. To all of you who have sent caring messages of support, you make me believe that this world has the potential to be better and to never let this happen again. To the 80 people who were murdered inside that venue who weren't so lucky, who didn't get to wake up today, And to all the pain that their family and friends are going through, I'm so sorry. There's nothing that will fix the pain. I feel privileged to be there for their last breaths. And truly believing that I would join them, I promise that their last thoughts were not on the animals who caused this. It was thinking of the people they loved. As I laid in the blood of strangers and waiting for my bullet to end my 22 years, I envisioned every face that I've ever loved and whispered I love you over and over again, reflecting on the highlights of my life, wishing that those I love knew just how much, wishing that they knew that no matter what happened to me, to keep believing in the good in people, to not let those men win. Last night, the lives of many were changed forever. And it's up to us to be better people. To live the lives that innocent victims of this tragedy dreamt of, but sadly will never be able to fulfill. I don't know if, if you, for the people, the family members who, who lost someone there, I, I mean, I don't know, I can't even imagine, but. I think it would be comforting to know that this woman who was in that exact same position, right? Lying in the blood of strangers for the hour. I guess it's comforting to know that, that she in the same position as the person who I, who I love, who maybe died. She was thinking positive. She was thinking good things. Even in the midst of seeing vultures circle the theater, systematically shooting people in the head. Even then, she still thought of all the people she loved. And even then, she thought of all her favorite memories for an hour throughout that. 
And now that she's out and she's alive, she's thinking, gosh, I, I'm going to keep believing in the good in people because of all the good I saw in that hour. Which <laughs> is amazing that you can see good in the midst of that. And I'm going to live a life that's worthy of those who didn't make it out alive. Is there anything like that's what we have to do, all of us. That's what we have to do. We talked earlier about preparing your family and uh, your friends and yourself for when this happens here, when this happens here. You know, and we talked about what that looks like emotionally and physically and spiritually, how to prepare these ways. Let me just say, I love, I love the gestures that people are doing. I mean, I think it's good, right? You know, Facebook profile pictures of the French flag. I think that's nice, but let's make sure it's not fleeting. I like what Isabel said. She says it's up to us to be better people. A simple rallying cry. Simple. Why is it so difficult? one 3393 on the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Chris Slater, Slater Radio on Twitter. Um, we have a lot more to do today, goodness gracious. So in the next hour, I want to talk about um, some stuff on college campuses. And we're going to do it quickly. You know, on my local show the other day, we, we scheduled a guest to talk about microaggressions. And I thought, um, you know, maybe it's not appropriate to talk to him because we're talking a lot about Paris and all that. And I said, you know what, it applies pretty nicely. Because there are microaggressions. and that's a word for aggressions that don't happen, <laughs> aggressions that don't exist, and, and are uh, aggressions that are the fault of the person receiving them, not giving them. That's on one hand, and that's what's going on on college campuses. And then on the other hand, you have aggressions. And that's what's happening all around the world and is coming here. So I think it is worth talking about microaggressions for a second. Maybe it's not fair to say, hey, Kids at University of Missouri who are scared to go to class because of a threat that does not exist. Look at what happened in Paris. There's a real aggression going on there. Now, maybe that's not fair. Some people will think that's uh, <clears throat> it's inappropriate. But I'm sure you've heard of the, the tweets from people in Missouri who are upset because what happened in Paris took them out of the headlines. And to be honest, obviously I'm not glad this happened in Paris, but I'm glad something happened that did take the kids from Missouri and Yale out of the headlines. It takes their power away. The children need to step aside because there are things we need to focus on that are more important than hurt feelings. One person in Missouri said that she was upset that the you know Paris took them out of the headlines. 
and uh, people, you know, <laughs> said, huh? And she said, you know, if we didn't rise up in Missouri these last few weeks, then a massacre like this could have, would have happened here. No. No, it wouldn't have. You're making this up. Your delusions are not real. The nightmares in Paris are. Remember the professor at Missouri who sent an email? And the email said uh, to his students, uh, if, if you don't feel safe coming to class, and again, this is based off nothing, this idea of being unsafe. She's, they said, uh, if, you, if you don't feel safe coming to class, then don't come to class, but I will be here, and there will be an exam administered. Because if you give in to bullies, they win. And the only way that bullies are defeated is by standing up to them. I know which side I am on. You make your own choice. That's the email I sent out to his students. He was run off campus. He resigned. He resigned because of the outrage against him over that email, which is 100% accurate. Kids say they're scared to go to class. Scared to go to class. Okay. To those kids, I say, think about the people of France today. How are they responding this morning? How do they react to actual aggression? Were they scared? Yes. Honestly, think of the average person in Paris today. What was the first thing they thought about when they woke up this morning? Why did they put their two feet on the floor? Why did they even get out of bed? But they did. And they got up and they took a shower and they ate breakfast and they got dressed and then they grabbed their coat. And there's no doubt about it, they put their hand on the doorknob of their front door and they said to themselves, are you sure you want to do this? I'm safe here. Should I just stay home? Should I stay inside? But they opened up the door and they walked outside of it. And they're walking down the street and they're about to walk down the stairs of the metro, the subway. And there's no doubt that every single person in Paris thought to themselves, you sure you want to do this? Is this safe? Someone at any moment could blow themselves up. It could be the person standing next to me. It could be the person standing next to me and I die instantly. Or there, it could be a person a little bit of a ways away and I could take shrapnel to the head. Or watch someone next to me die. Sounds crazy? It happened Friday night. So should I walk down this subway staircase? What's the security of this subway? I don't see any police officers here. And even if I did, they couldn't stop anything. Should I walk down this subway staircase? Once I'm there, I can't get out. But they did. And they got on the subway. And they're standing there holding onto the bars, women sitting down in the seats. And I'm sure everyone looking around at each other, not sure what to do. Not sure if they're the only one who's scared out of their minds or if everyone else is too. But you know what I bet happened, and I probably this afternoon we'll see a video of it. I can pretty much guarantee you that this happened. I can guarantee you that there was a train this morning in Paris 
full of people, all kinds of people, diverse people, and not just in skin color, but in every possible way, interest, passions, backgrounds, income. I guarantee you that there was at least one train of people that broke out in song. How's the anthem go? Uh, <clears throat> uh, you got ch children of the fatherland. Motherland fighting fatherland. The day of glory has arrived. Against us, tyranny's bloody banner is raised. It's the opening of their national anthem. So I guarantee you at least one train of people did that. And I know that happened because at the soccer game on Friday night, people were filing out of the stadium singing the national anthem. The point is, people of Paris, they went to work today. They worked all day. And then tonight, they're going to go home. And they're going to be with their families, and life will go on because people are resilient. People overcome adversity. People do things even when they're scared. And it's worth making note of that. It's worth highlighting that. It's worth acknowledging that. Because the children at our colleges seem to think that they shouldn't. So while the University of Delaware is starting a million-dollar diversity, diversity initiative after a noose was found hanging from a tree in the middle of campus, and they found out later that it was just a piece of string from a paper lantern that was hanging from the tree the night before, it looks nothing like a noose. It looks a lot like just a piece of string. A million-dollar diversity initiative. And people are still scared on the University of Delaware's campus. They're still scared for their lives because a string from a paper I think it's fair to say, hey, children, look at the people of France. That's a long way of saying, up next, we're going to talk about microaggressions. Where this came from, I'm really grateful that um, these two social scientists, we're going to talk to one of them, looked at it from a scientific perspective, looked at this whole thing from an uh, academia perspective. Like, Why is this happening? Where did this come from? It started with honor cultures, then we moved into a dignity culture, and now we have this victimhood culture. And it's so important. And, and we're not just going to, I'm sick of talking about the college campuses, although this is where it is right now. But if we don't acknowledge it and we don't stomp it out, then it's going to grow from the college campuses and it's going to be just our culture. And if that's our culture, there's no chance, no chance of surviving the attack on Western civilization. There's no way because you're a victim and you curl over in the fetal position. If that's what we do to made up threats, what do you think this next generation is going to do to actual threats. <laughs> of course, of course I could do the same thing. 1-888-900-3393 on the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. So I've been thinking a lot recently about the Christian response to the refugee situation, the Syrian refugee situation. 
And and we talked about it a lot on my local show. And I, and I tell you, Nathan here did a better job than articulating than I ever could. So I wanted to, to play for you, Nathan, uh, his thoughts on the Christian response to this. Let's make time for Nathan right here in uh, Camp Pendleton. What's going on, Nathan? Hey, not much, Mike. I uh, love your show. And uh-huh. I think you might be talking about the article that I replied to yesterday. Um, that was one of a couple I read. A pastor had written one who I respect immensely, and he said, I don't know what to do. I'm going to be honest with my block. You know, I, mm-hmm. I don't know what to do on this situation. This is a difficult one. And then that article, um, an article that I think you're talking about because it's pretty popular right now on Facebook, is kind of a guilt trip toward Christians. Like, hey, this is an easy answer. We do it. We take them in. You know what? I don't know. Um, I don't know the article that uh, from Facebook that you may be referring to. Uh, okay. Um, well, maybe I can. Yeah, shoot it over to me. I don't know. Tag it at your Facebook or yeah, shoot yeah, it over. yeah. Um. But to me, this was not a moral dilemma, and I was kind of even arguing with myself as to why I know so surely in my mind that it's not a moral dilemma. I grew up Christian my whole life. I know you are, and I, and I believe um, that to me, this wasn't even hard. It's, it's a no for me. Um, don't take them. And it's not about love in, in, in one sense of the word. So a couple reasons that I gave for this. Number one, the American government is not commissioned by God yes. to go and do the works of God and Christianity in the world. It's not. American government was founded maybe by Christians to do good things, but for who? It's citizens. So let's say America does have a mandate to love its neighbor. The person it's supposed to love is the person it has an obligation to treat with the most respect and treat with the most um, benevolence, and that's the citizens, keeping them safe, providing for the common defense, providing for fair uh, you know, commerce, providing for – so all these things that they've dictated and that we agree with that needs to happen. So when we talk about love, it is not Americans' job under God or Christ or anything else to go out and love the refugee and endanger the people that is responsible to them most. And by America, you say you mean the government of America. The government of America, absolutely. So what I think of it like is, is a pastor. And what does the Bible say about a pastor? The pastor, any pastor who cares for his flock and tends his flock, but his home is falling apart and literally going to hell, is not a good pastor. Mm-hmm. Literally can't and, be an elder in the church. Absolutely. And same with a father. If I gave all my earnings in, 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 in being a father to 10 homeless families and took care of those 10 homeless families, but I let my own starve and my own be malnourished, I'm a horrible father. Mm. And, and so when we talk about love, what's, what's happening is, is, is Christians get all emotional and caught up in this leftist idea of what love is. Love is don't kill the, the murderer in, in, in capital punishment because that's unloving, when in reality it's unloving to society to keep them alive you know, and endanger society or impoverish society because you're keeping this guy alive out of the sake of love. It's a twisted version of love. And, you know, and that, that goes besides the point because you brought up Chris Matthews yesterday, so that's a strong enough point in and of itself. But from the Christian worldview, we've got to stop being twisted as to who America is supposed to love as a government. Uh, so even if they are benevolent, they need to love the citizens and think of them first. That's who they owe their allegiances to. Okay, first of all, like grand slam, absolute home run, beautifully said. Let me let me add to this just in case uh, someone may be wondering about something else. Because you were very clear, and I and I wanted to make sure you were clear about one point um, that this is the government's role. I think the Bible also has commandments on Christians to go help people in need, but that is separate and distinct from the United States government, no? Absolutely, because the United States, absolutely, and we do. And, and, and yes, be, because it is 
like, and that's why I differentiated. Like, I used the pastor as the example, or I used the uh, father as an example. My job isn't to not love. My job isn't to not do these things. Um, it's not. It's not that the pastor's job isn't to care for his flock and only care for the home, or, or you know, or that people aren't supposed to individually do what Christ mandated them to do. If someone asked me for, so basically the rule. Someone asked me for my coat. I also give them my shirt. In that sense of the word, I am obligated to have that type of charity and, and toward another human being. But a government's duty of that type of charity goes to the citizens to whom it is obligated to protect, not to fleece its citizens of their coat and shirt and then hand it to refugees from across the world that they're not obligated to protect. So if, you're, if they're denying their obligations at home or you know, letting it go to hell – and then trying to care for the Syrians, it's, it's a false love. It's, it's not real. It's not what we're mandated to do. Does, and I'm, ask, I'm only asking this because you're just, just hitting home runs left and right. Um, does God see Americans and Syrians or humans and humans? He sees humans and humans, but I don't think he looks at humans as governments. So I do believe that he sees humans and humans. Um, and, and not Syrians. Like, for instance, we're all up in arms, and everyone's got the Facebook flag of, of France because 130 died in a terrorist attack. Nobody was flying the Kurdish flag. No one was flying the Iraqi flag. And no one was flying the Egyptian flag when tens of thousands of those Christians are getting slaughtered by ISIS all the time. Yeah. You know, so we see this statist allegiance to government type. God doesn't see that. He sees people dying. And and so to treat America, this secular statist organization put together to help protect its citizens as human to human and treating America like it's a human that needs to be benevolent to the humans, and that's wrong. Hmm. As people, we are supposed to do that. But as a government, it doesn't work that way. All right, final question. Um, w- hmm. How – all right, so what do you say to someone who says we're a nation of immigrants, we have – nation of refugees we have a role in the world what's like your do you have like a one cent i know this is t- tricky but like what's like your one two because if you don't like they're going to paint you as a callous you know hateful person my role in the world stops the moment it detracts or interferes with my role toward my obligations at home i love that line there my role in the world stops the moment it distract detracts me from my obligations at home. Take that one. Mike Slater Show, Blade Radio Network. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Later in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. All right, I want to. Um... Oh, by the way, last hour was so good because we talked about the Christian response to the refugees in Syria, what that looks like. Because I, I, we got a lot of Bible-splaining going on from people who are like, oh, 
I, reminds me of a story about a pregnant couple who wanted to stay at an inn but couldn't. Christians, right? So we talked all about the proper Christian response to the refugee crisis. So we'll do that a little later as well. I want to replay these main phone calls. But right now, I want to play this short clip from Dartmouth. So Dartmouth College, an Ivy League school, small. I think it's like, I want to say it's under 2,000. I think it's a tiny, tiny school. Uh, so you saw this a couple of days ago. There were kids studying in the library, and Black Lives Matter protesters rushed in and started chanting Black Lives Matter, and they're swearing at the students. The students who were just studying, by the way. They're just sitting there reading uh, at the desks and everything. Okay, so the Black Lives Matter protesters interrupting people's studying. So the vice provost, and we don't need to play the clips, just you can imagine. So the vice provost of the university, I don't even know what a provost does. What's a provost do? Let alone a vice provost. Uh, she had a, a meeting with, uh, I don't know, there's like 100 kids in this room. And they're chatting about the, uh, the experience. So here we go. Let's, let's, let's listen in. I know it doesn't help. But we received a lot of terrible calls today, too, and we told them that they were all, you know, ridiculous and that the protest was a wonderful, beautiful thing. Can you elaborate? You know, people, there's a whole conservative world out there that's not being very nice. <laughs> First thing I'm going to do is go home and talk to Harry Kinney about security for the people that were in the protest. <coughs> Second thing. Did you hear that? Security for people who were in the protest. Oh, yeah, not the snaps. I wasn't, I wasn't referring to the snaps. Of course you heard that. So the, the vice provost says that what happened in the library was a wonderful, beautiful thing. And she apologized to them. And then she said she's going to make sure that there's security for them, the protesters. That is so strange. And here's what I want to talk about. Not, not a proper role. That's not the right. What am I trying to say? Not um, whoever that adult is, is doing it wrong. <laughs> Put it like that. So I was listening to Morgan Snyder the other day. And he was talking about the years of your 20s versus the years of your 30s. And he talked about how your 20s, which is these college kids are in, is, is a very narcissistic time. It's all about you. And that's not necessarily a sin, right? You're building your life. You're stretching yourself. You're doing new things. You're moving. You're you know, getting a job. And you're, you're doing all these things for the first time. So it's all about you. Versus your 30s are a time when you start to be responsible for other people. So the 20s and 30s are very different decades. For most people, of course, this is a broad brush. And you see this all over the place. Next time you go to the airport, um, you'll and keep an eye on for this in the airport. You'll see people in their 20s and you'll see people in their 30s. And what they're doing very clearly proves what type of life phase they're in. So you'll go to the airport next time. And you'll see the girl with a full-sized pillow. Have you ever seen that? You ever seen this one before? The girl with the full-sized pillow, right? So for that girl, it's all about her. And that's okay. Don't get me wrong. 
But look at what bringing an entire pillow with you says about your focus. And again, I'm not judging, not judging. She just wants to be comfortable on the plane. And she can bring a pillow with her. That's my point. She can bring a pillow with her. So she's carrying a pillow around the airport in her pajamas. Now, compare that with the dad carrying three car seats through the airport. Have you ever seen that? Is there a more miserable creature than a young dad carrying three car seats through an airplane, airport? God bless him. I remember it was a couple of years ago, I saw a dad in an airport. He was by himself, and he had two little kids. He had a baby in his arm, and he had a toddler running around. And he was carrying both the kids and uh, a, a, a stroller and a pink diaper bag and who knows what else all by himself. Clearly, the man hasn't slept in months. And I saw him a few years ago. And where I was in my life, I didn't really notice. I mean, I took note, but I didn't really have any empathy for him because I wasn't even close to that life phase yet. So I didn't even, I just, I was selfish. I didn't even think about it. I feel like now if I saw that guy again, I'd first I'd offer to help, but I would at least give him an encouraging word about what a great dad he clearly is uh, to his kids. So when I saw that guy a few years ago, I was essentially the girl with a full-size pillow. <laughs> Does that make sense? The analogy makes sense here, right? It was all about me. I wasn't even aware of the people around me. I was like, ah, stinks to be that guy. But that, that was it. And I say this, and it's not bad. It's not sinful. It's, it's expected. And we try to fight it, but it's just part of the process. And I say this because at a certain point, your life goes from being all about you to uh, all about other people. And I feel like these protesters, the kids who are just napping, they're just kids and they haven't found their purpose yet. And they haven't found a purpose that's bigger than them. And that's okay. I don't criticize them. Here's the problem. Not the kids, but the adults around them. The adult in that room is the problem. The adult who should be guiding these kids to someplace bigger and more important than carrying their pillow Everywhere they go. I was talking to two friends of mine yesterday. And one of them said that it's just been the last couple of years that he realized how wise his dad is. Because all these things started happening in his life. And, and the, the pieces of advice that his dad gave him finally made sense. So when his dad would give him the advice five years ago, he'd be like, whatever, dad. And now something happens like, oh, like <laughs> that's, that's what that is. And my other friend said, man, I'm right with you. He said at a certain point in high school, he, he realized that he was smarter than his dad. And it took him a while just to come to terms with the fact, you know, my dad, he, uh, he means well. But 
You know, clearly I'm smarter than him. I mean, my dad can't help me with my calculus homework anymore, so I'm smarter than him. And he didn't go to college at all, so, you know, bless his heart, but the son has surpassed the old man. That was in high school and college, and now he's realized how much wisdom and life experience his dad has and how foolish he was all those years for not realizing it. The kids are just that. They're kids. But the adults are not acting like adults by catering to this, by dropping down to their level and by validating silliness and pettiness. The adults in this college, they're not imparting wisdom. They're encouraging adolescents. Right? So the narcissism of kids, understandable, but it's the job of adults to increase the size of the world so that these students realize how small of a part they play in it. And this is what, and that sounds weird, but that's what happens when you learn, right? When you learn about the world and about people and about history and really about anything, you realize how little you know. That's called learning. <laughs> Our kids in college say they don't get that experience. They don't graduate with a realization of how little they know. They graduate with the arrogance thinking they know everything. College kids should, should not be, it shouldn't be an empowering four years where you leave thinking that you can take on the world and win in six months time. It should not be an empowering experience. College should be a humbling experience where when you graduate, you realize how huge the world is, how little you are, and it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of other people and a lot of time and wisdom and experience to make even a dent of a difference. But you're going to go do it. College is doing it wrong. I don't blame the kids in that room. They can snap all day long. I blame the adult in there for letting them and not calling them to something higher. Mike Slater Show, spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Later on the Blaze Radio Network. The problem with C.S. Lewis is I have to read it 25 times. But it's so here's part of it. Quote: No man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard. Let me say why I'm saying this. We were just talking about this college kid. Particularly I don't blame them. I really don't. I really don't blame them. They're in that phase of their life where that's to be expected. They're a kid. You know, 
turning into adults. And sure, a long time ago, we expected a lot more. Our greatest generation there, you know, 18-year-olds going off and fighting in Europe. So we should expect more out of them, but in the end, fine. We've delayed adulthood for a couple more years. Okay. My problem is with the adults who are not taking their proper role in this adult-child relationship. No man knows how bad it is until he's tried very hard. A silly idea is around that good people do not know what temptation means. So what he's saying here is maybe you've seen a scene where someone falls to temptation in some way. And that person is critical of someone who's a goody two-shoes, right? Someone who hasn't succumbed to the same temptation. And that person who stumbled says, you don't know what it's like. You don't know what it's like to have fallen to temptation. Like I, you don't know what it was like to, to be tempted. And C.S. Lewis, he says, this is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. I want to relate that to college kiddos complaining about everything. They know very little about suffering. They know very little about pain. They know very little about discrimination because they give into it so quickly. We'll just use the military example. So the, so C.S. Lewis, that quote came from a radio address he gave during World War II to the British soldiers. So when he talks about giving into the German army. That example hits very close to home to his audience. So let's take two soldiers who are going against uh, the Japanese during World War II. Right? We can imagine that. Two soldiers going against the Japanese. One soldier lands on an island. One shot from the enemy comes his way and he goes and finds a cave and hides in it for six months. The other soldier lands on that same island, a bullet runs, uh, flies past him, and he continues to fight valiantly. He never surrenders. He's starving. He's, he's dying of thirst, sweating through his uniform. He's never sleeping because either a shell's going to hit him or a Japanese soldier's going to sneak up on him and slit his throat. But he never stops. After six months, which of these two soldiers know difficulty? Which of these two soldiers truly understands suffering? Which of these two soldiers knows temptation? In this case, it would be the temptation to surrender. Which one knows? Who knows the temptation to surrender? The one who surrendered or the one who didn't? College kids today surrender too quickly. They're hiding in caves. They're avoiding life. And they're hiding in a cave. And when the sun, 
is, is rising in a perfect place between the trees and whatnot, a little ray of light is coming into that cave and they run and hide and pitch a fit because of it. And again, it's not the fault of the kids. It's the, it is a little bit, but it's the fault of the adults, the parents, the administrators for shielding them, for shielding them and not telling them, hey, you know what? It's okay to come into the light. It's called growing up. Come on, I'll teach you how it's done. One last story here. Morgan Snyder's uh, home uh, lives in suburbia. And he said there's two giant Douglas firs in the front of his home. And he lives alongside a mountain or just on the other side of a mountain. So you got the mountain, you got these, this long row of homes, and then some trees in the front yard. And he says the wind is blocked by the mountain, and then it's blocked by this row of homes. So in the front of his yard, he has these two giant, beautiful, thriving Douglas firs in his front yard. They're towering. They're just beautiful. And they're blocked. The wind never hits them because it's blocked by the mountain and by the homes. But one day a rogue wind came in from the other direction, knocked one of the trees over, right in the driveway, almost crashed into his house. And he took a picture of the root structure. I'm sure you've seen a tree that's, that fell over from the roots. Not, not a tree that snapped in the middle, right? But one that fell over from the roots, right? Like the whole root structure is pulled up from the ground and the dirt's hanging from it and all the rest. And you usually see these trees do this and they have this giant root structure. It's long, it's deep, it's twisted and strong. But this tree in his front yard, huge, Douglas, I don't know, tall as the tower, 20, 20 something feet tall, no roots. He took a picture of it. It's unbelievable how shallow these roots are like an inch. The root structure is an inch. It's unbelievable instead of feet. And the reason the root structure is so shallow is because the tree never needed a deeper root structure. It never needed a deeper support system because the tree was always protected from the wind. We're not properly challenging kids. Growing up or in college, dare I say. I mean, growing up, I mean, we, we don't let him play tag because it may hurt some feelings because there's no, and what we do is we, we uh, take from them the process of conflict resolution. We're not challenging kids or we're challenging them on the wrong things. We're challenging them to grow, right? Kids in college, grow, 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 graduate, uh, go get your internship, make as much money as possible. Right? That's the part of the tree you see. Right, We're telling them to achieve, to push, get the job, make the money. We're challenging them in that way, but we're not challenging kids to grow down, to grow deep, to grow roots. And one day, a wind will come. And your resume won't matter. And your root structure will be exposed. And it won't be the kids' fault. Mike Slater Show and Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network.
This is Mike Slater. Slater Crusaders. Thanks for being here. Slater Radio on uh, on Twitter. I'm talking about, uh, I just I kind of want to wrap up, hopefully for a while, uh, talking about college kids. I know we've talked a lot about them the last couple of weeks. Uh, just going on Yale, Missouri. It's going to spread outside of the universities, too, if we don't acknowledge it, right? If we don't acknowledge it and, and recognize where it's wrong and where people are failing and whatnot. And that's sort of my main point here. It's, I'm not, I'm not going to criticize the kids anymore because they're doing what they're doing. What kids will try to get away with anything, right? It's up to the adults to be proper mentors and guide them. And, and in the last segment, we were talking about help the kids grow, not taller. I feel like we have such a emphasis on, to use a tree analogy or you can ice, use an iceberg analogy on what we see, the tree growing taller, the iceberg growing bigger. But the root structure is what matters in a tree, and 90% of the iceberg is below the water, right? We know that. we got to be teaching kids to grow down more, not to grow up. College is all about having kids grow tall. Study, uh, you know, get your degrees, get your internship, get a job, get a lot of money. That's how they judge the effectiveness of schools is right? you're, you're how much money you're expected to make after you graduate, right? So as if that's the only thing that matters, right? That's not what should matter in a school. A school should challenge kids. Kids should not leave feeling empowered. They should feel leaving humbled, which in the end is empowering. But a false sense of empowerment, as if you're the their greatest person who's ever lived on the face of the planet, go on and conquer the world in six months, I'm sure you'll be running the show, is not a healthy uh, way to, to raise kids. That's how our colleges are, are contributing. We got to teach kids to dig deeper roots as opposed to building their towers as tall as possible. Am I, does it make sense when I say that college should be, shouldn't be an empowering experience? It should be a humbling one. I think when, when you graduate college, when kids graduate college, arrogant, thinking that they're going to conquer it, the world in six months, they are doomed. <laughs> Right? They're doomed to disappointment and misery, which is why so many kids out of college are depressed because they have an expectation of grandeur and life is hard. But if you're humble out of college, if you leave college thinking, you know what, I don't know everything. In fact, I know almost nothing. Then you have a posture of you're open to learning. You have a posture of being able to absorb. You have a posture of wanting to network and uh, find mentors. And you have a timeline that's much more reasonable. And you're not going to try to live your life to keep up with the Joneses and put up errors and pretending to be more than you're not and, and creating a false image on Facebook of who you are and how successful you are just so you can keep up with someone else's false image that they put on Facebook about how successful and rich they are. That's exhausting. And if we graduate kids who are humbled by their college experience, then in the very not so long run, that person's going to be far ahead of the person who leaves arrogant. Because the person who leaves arrogant, they may grow their tree really tall, but that root structure is not there. One wind's going to come by and blow it right over. Adults in college need to give kids wisdom, not treat them like they're the greatest little things that the planet has ever seen. 
It's really frustrating that we do it that way. And that's why I love the story. Do you remember? I forget what time we, I thought we shared it last week. I'm not, maybe we didn't. Um, the former president of Boston University. So this guy was the president, Silver was his name, I think John Silver. He was the president in the 70s. And kids were protesting like they always do and they're always going to. And one of the protests, they built a shanty town. A little shanty town somewhere on campus and in town. And the president of the university did not say like the clip we played a little bit. Can we play that clip one more time of the Dartmouth? This is the, the vice provost of something or other at Dartmouth. After the Dartmouth kids stormed the library and started chanting Black Lives Matter and swearing up a storm at these people and flicking off the camera. And it's just brutal. By the way, have I told you at Yale? So Yale, the, uh, the night before, a um, little side story here, Your Honor. The night before finals. It must be. So they have a week before finals where there's no class. It's called, it's called reading week, I think. So you just study. This is all studying. Or, you know. <laughs> a lot of partying and then a lot of cramming those last two nights. But the week, the, at midnight, the day before Monday, uh, if you're uh, unfortunate enough to be in the library, there's a comedy group on campus called The Rumpus, and they all strip naked and run through the library and throw candy at everyone. Well, Yale tradition right there. So anyway, these kids were, <laughs> were uh, oh, Ivy League, right? Gonna take on the world. So empowered, so powerful. Um, these kids were just studying, and these Black Lives Matter protesters come in and harass them. Uh, and here's the vice provost talking with uh, about a hundred kids or so who are in this movement. I know it doesn't help. But we received a lot of terrible calls today, too, and we told them that they were all, you know, ridiculous and that the protest was a wonderful, beautiful thing. Can you elaborate? Wow. You know, people, there's a whole conservative world out there that's not being very nice. Not <laughs> nice. First thing I'm going to do is go home and talk to Harry Kinney about security for the people that were in the protest. Snaps. Second thing. Snaps. Snaps. Okay, we could go on. You get the idea. So the lady apologizes to them, the people who broke the rules of the library, interfering with other students' studies. They get the apology, and they get the security. What? So the, so the contrast to that is the former president of Boston University. And again, these people built this shantytown. And he told the police, he said, go ask them three questions. First, do you have a title to the property? Do you have a title to this property? Because they built these shanties on our property, not theirs. Second question, do you have a building permit? Because we have to have building permits when you get something done. And third, did you get a clearance from the historical commission? Because this is a historical district. And he said to the police, if the answer is no to any of those three questions, then you tell them, we'll give you about 15 minutes to remove your shanty. And if you don't, you'll be arrested. This is an interview that the president did uh, 2005. Remembering of what happened in the, back in the 70s. And he said to the police, uh, I said, now, none of them are going to remove their shanty. So you're going to have to arrest them. But I want you to be very gentle. And I want you to take them to the paddy wagging. 
paddy wagon, singing, It's just a shanty in an old shanty town. Which is an old the old song from whatever, 50s. Even, it's just a shanty in an old shanty town. Because the one point I want to get across to these students is I don't take them seriously. This is the president of the university. I don't take them seriously. This is not some very deeply felt high moral cause on their part. This is showboating of a very insincere kind by most of these students. And I want them to understand that I see right through their pretensions. Is that not the opposite of what you just heard from that Dartmouth vice provost? Telling them they're going to give them security and they're so sorry for what happened to you. (laughs) What? So his point is, kids, you have no idea. You think you know it all. But no, no, no. I'm the adult here. What you're doing here is silly. It's not as deep as you think it is. You're showboating. You're not sincere. And I, the adult, am not falling for it. Get back to class. That's what an adult on a college campus would do, used to do. You can do it in countless different ways. And this, prof- this uh, former president said 10 years later, those students who were arrested came back to him and said, you know, that was one of the best things you've done. You did. One of the best things you did, because for the first time ever, you made me think, this is a quote, you made me think about what I needed to do and about whether what I was doing was right or wrong. No one in that room at Dartmouth College with that adult there leading them was challenged on what, whether or not what they were doing was right or wrong. And that is a failure of the administration. Apologizing to the kids for not creating enough safe spaces. When it's the the protesters who ran into the library and screamed down the kids who were minding their own business and the administration apologizes to them. Here's my final question. We'll run on this. How deep are adults asking our kids to grow? Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Part of the next generation of talk radio, this is Mike Slater. I want to wrap this up here, and then I uh, want to end on, a, I think, a positive note, but um, on this point here about uh, college with Alan Dershowitz, uh, Harvard Law professor. He said the last thing these students want is diversity. Last thing. They may want superficial diversity, because for them, diversity is a code word for more of us. They don't want more conservatives. They don't want more white students. They don't want more heterosexuals. I think the most important thing to point out is the double standard and hypocrisy. These are students who want safe spaces for themselves, but not for others. They're prepared to spit on people going out of lectures. So Dershowitz spoke at City College of New York recently, and he says when he was walking out of the, the area, the building, people were shouting, Zionists out of SUNY. 
Zionists out of Sunni. He needed police officers to escort him around campus. He said, these students don't want me to be safe. They don't want students who agree to me to be safe. They just want their ideas to be safe and protected from any contrary point of view. And I'll end this topic on, on this maxim. A man is truly honorable if he is willing to be perpetually exposed to the scrutiny of honorable people. A man is truly honorable if he's willing to be perpetually exposed to the scrutiny of honorable people. Now, I could go into a thing right now about the president and who he surrounds himself with and his military advisors. Uh, I've never seen a lick of military service. Um, and, you know, earlier we talked about Abraham Lincoln and the people he surrounded himself with, his team of rivals. But I'm not going to end the show on that note. I want to end with a note here from Isabel. So Isabel was inside of the Paris Theater. And she survived. She talked about the time, that the hour that she spent laying on the ground, um, pretending to be dead, amongst dead bodies and everyone's blood. And this is her final remembrance of that and, and a message to the families of, of those who did die. She said, acts like these are supposed to highlight the depravity of humans and the images of those men circling us like vultures will haunt me for the rest of my life. The way they meticulously aimed at sh and shot at people. Something that will never leave me. But being a survivor of this horror lets me be able to shed light on the heroes. To the man who reassured me and put his life on the line to try and cover my head while I whimpered. To the couple whose last words of love kept me believing the good in the world to the police who succeeded in rescuing hundreds of people, to the complete strangers who picked me up from the road and consoled me during the 45 minutes I truly believed that the boy I loved was dead, to the injured man who I had mistaken for him, and then on my recognition that he was not the man I loved, held me and told me that everything was going to be okay despite being all alone and scared himself, to the woman who opened her doors to the survivor, to the friend who offered me shelter, and went out to buy new clothes so I wouldn't have to wear this blood-stained top. And she goes on. This is what I want to end with. She's talking to the family. She says, I believed that I would be joining them. I believed that their last thought, and, and because of that, I promised that their last thoughts were not on the animals who caused all this. I was thinking of the people I loved. As I lay down in the blood of strangers waiting for a bull to end my mere 22 years, I envisioned every face that I've ever loved over and over again. I reflected on the highlights of my life. I did wish that those I, knew, I loved knew just how much, wishing that they knew that no matter what happened to me, to keep believing in the good of people, to not let those animals win. Last night, the lives of many were changed forever, and it's up to us to be better people to live lives that the innocent victims of this tragedy dreamt about, but sadly will now never be able to fulfill. Last week, just a couple hours after this happened, we talked about preparing your family, preparing your family emotionally, physically, and spiritually. And really that all comes back to 
being better people. And that's what Isabel said there, right? It's up to us to be better people. It's a simple rallying cry. So simple. And why is it so difficult? Slater Radio on Twitter. You can follow us on the Mike Slater Show. Uh, just search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. I will see you next week. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Mike Slater Show, the Boys Radio. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.